With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Each week, the Athletic's tactics writer, Michael Cox, and its football analytics writer, Mark Carey, join me, Ali Maxwell, to discuss, well, varied footballing topics week on week. Our particular areas of interest are football tactics and data analytics within the game that we love. Uh, I've got Michael and Mark with me today to talk all things Manchester United and their new interim manager, future consultant, the godfather. Ralph Ranick. We're going to talk about him in depth, something of a, a life and times of Ralph Ranick in footballing terms. Uh, we're going to get right into that. Michael, how are you this week? Very good, thank you. You've done some interesting work on The Athletic over the last week or so, most notably uh, Pure Cox this. Who is the best player from each of England's 48 counties? I mean, they do give you a long leash, don't they? <laughs> yeah, it was suggested to me as the best player from each kind of urban area. And I was like, well, it might be fun, but how about we do counties? Because no, no one ever talks about counties in footballing terms. But mm. I was pleasantly surprised with some of the players that popped up, to be honest. Uh, Ivan Tony and Ollie Watkins and Ben White, all from areas of the country that you don't necessarily consider massive footballing hotbeds. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it was quite fun. I mean, it was an impossible thing to research and I did miss a couple. So the comments section was quite interesting as well. You do do your own research still, yeah? You're not, you haven't got too big for that. <laughs> um, I think this was a task where the whole fun was the research. You know? <laughs> I was sitting there punching the air when I found out it, like a couple of... When I found out there was a footballer from the Isle of Wight who was a, <laughs> a, a football league uh, regular, that was a particularly joyous moment I, I once did work experience as an 18 year old at a, a very popular and excellent football magazine here in the UK and and this feels like the sort of research job that they gave work experience kids to do just to keep them occupied so when I was there I had to log the height and weight of every Premier League player cross-referencing the Rothmans yearbook the physical book and using Google as well and and this struck me as the sort of thing that uh, that you might have chucked the way of the intern but no of course not research uh, a big part of, of what you enjoy about the job uh, Adam B in the comments did uh, request a follow-up on London boroughs uh, which as someone from London I would love to see I would agree with I think you'll probably leave that to someone else um, because I, I think a lot of people from London uh, would look at Harry Kane being the pick for Greater London and have no arguments with that, but also feel like they're probably more attached to the borough. For example, for me, Wandsworth compared to Greater London as a whole. So I had a little look myself uh, and I want you to be the referee here, Michael. For Wandsworth, uh, the borough of Wandsworth, I reckon in terms of men's football, it's between Callum Hudson-Odoi and Mikel Antonio. So who would, who would win based on the criteria that you set there? That's an interesting one. I mean, I'd probably go for... Antonio for two reasons. One, because he's playing really well at the moment. But two, I also tried to include if a player, if there was a kind of marginal decision, if a player felt particularly linked to a, 
a particular area, I went for them. So, for example, uh, I know Antonio played for, was it Tooting and Mitchum? Tooting and Mitchum, yeah, there you go. I'm not sure they technically are in Wandsworth Borough, are they Tooting? Probably isn't, but he's got a real kind of South London link there. So a couple of a couple of other ones. I wasn't really sure whether to go for um, Ellen White or Leah Williamson for one of the counties, but when I found out that Leah Williamson had turned on the local Christmas lights in her <laughs> hometown a couple of years ago. <laughs> that was the kind of thing that, that swung, swung it. That swung yeah. it. Mark Kerry's with us. Mark, who's the best footballer from the county from which you hail? Well, I, well, this is a controversial one in Michael's piece where <laughs> I'm from Worcestershire and I think you're talking probably within a couple of miles that was Jude Belling was just on the right side of being in Worcestershire when if you just listen to an interview with him, he's got a very strong Birmingham accent. But um, yeah, he'd be he'd be the one that I could, I guess, pin myself alongside, but uh, not quite as talented as him on the ball. Now, you're not allowed nearly as much frivolity with your work on the athletic site. This week, you've been <laughs> you've been soaking in liquid rangnick for your latest pieces. How have you found that? Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a fun one. Maybe not quite as fun as, as Michael's, but uh, yeah, I felt exhausted just reading about Ranić's sort of style <laughs> of play, to be, to be honest. But no, I enjoyed writing it. It was sort of delving into his formations, his tactical style, and importantly, how that sort of how Man United, how far away they are from that, that style that he plays, which is interesting. So it'll be a big shake up at United, I think, but it'll be interesting to see how they do. And that is what we're going for today. I enjoyed the first line of your piece. The king is dead. Long live the interim king because of course <laughs> Ranić has agreed a six month term of being Manchester United's interim manager and then I believe has agreed a two year consultancy role following on from that so we really are talking today about Ranić's style of play historically and how quickly he might be able to transpose that onto his latest project with Manchester United. Big game on Thursday night against Arsenal but Michael Carrick will remain in the dugout uh, for that game. Ranić uh, wrestling with the authorities in terms of work permits and things like that and, and of course Carrick took charge Michael of the the big game on Sunday Chelsea won Manchester United won and your piece reflecting on that game you noticed a nice little detail in how he used Scott McTominay to defend in particular uh, and improve a situation that United had struggled with in previous big games I mean Chelsea uh you know I guess now famous for the fact that their wing backs keep on scoring and Marcus Alonso came into the side I know he frustrates some Chelsea fans but it's, it's clearly a big aerial threat when the ball is wide and um it was just interesting to see Scott McTominay starting as a central midfielder but dropping into the defence, partly to help United not be overloaded by Chelsea's front five, but also just to deal with Marcus Alonso's threat in the air. So you had a centre-back dropping into centre-back to mark an opposition wing-back, which I don't think I've ever seen before, so I thoroughly enjoyed that. And you presumably have got some Ralph Ranić content going up on site this week. There's plenty on there already. Rafa Honigstein uh, with the Mega Primer uh, and so much other good stuff as well. John Muller's piece, uh, as well as Mark's, is absolutely brilliant for understanding the numbers behind previous Ranić sites. Uh, it's £3.33 a month. That is the current athletic offer. If you're not a subscriber but you'd like to read all of Mark and Michael's pieces and so much more as well, that's a 40% discount on a year subscription head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics to sign up today. Uh, Michael, let's kick off with some top line stuff on Ralph Ranić, who is 
or will be managing outside of Germany for the first time. Of course, he comes direct from Moscow, where he's been Locomotive Moscow's head of sports and development. What would you say are your sort of top line thoughts on this decision from Manchester United? Well, I think he's a great person to have involved at, at the club. Clearly, he's um, taken on a variety of roles in recent years, particularly at RB Leipzig, um, who have progressed from from nowhere to being one of the major clubs in Germany. And I think it's very obvious from from listening to other managers speak about him that he's hugely respected. And I don't think there's any doubt that he, um, in a slightly peculiar way, almost kickstarted the German obsession with gag and pressing which has come to define their football to a certain extent has come to define European football um, I must say I, I find the whole situation slightly peculiar with the fact that he's going to be an interim manager and then supposedly a consultant for two years I've got various question marks about that in terms of how that shift is going to work um, in terms of to what extent he's going to have a say in appointing the next manager but also I'd say mainly because Interim managers aren't generally tasked with transforming the style of football. Usually an interim manager comes in, I think of Gus Hiddink or uh, Rafa Benitez at Chelsea, and the dressing room's been a bit broken. You know, they're, they're meant to kind of calm things there. They're meant to keep things simple tactically, get the big players on board, and basically create some kind of stability for whoever's coming in next. But, I mean, the <laughs> the way people are speaking about Rangnick, there's going to be a massive overhaul of the footballing philosophy which is very difficult in six months and very difficult when uh, I don't know the, the figures off the top of my head but there's so many games over the next month or so so there's not going to be that much time on the training ground so I, I'm fascinated to see how it works and like I said I think he's a fascinating character but I think it's um it's a tricky job um with the kind of uh, slightly peculiar roles he's been given mm, yeah it's certainly Unusual, isn't it? He, he'll become the sixth German manager in Premier League history, but the third current manager, and with Daniel Farker having just left the building at Norwich as well, that's a clear recent trend in Premier League terms. In Rafa Honigstein's piece, he writes that the fact German coaches are so much in demand right now is a function of Jurgen Klopp doing well at Liverpool and the Ranić conveyor belt producing a steady array of young, fiercely ambitious managerial talents who combine strong interpersonal skills with superb technical know-how, throw in Tuchel's Champions League success with Chelsea last season, and there has never been more of a clamour for those schooled in the Ranić philosophy. Uh, Michael, it, it does feel from my perspective like Ranić's reputation has grown and grown outside Germany so much in the last decade, even though it's been his least active period in terms of actually managing a football team. It's only Leipzig whose dugout he has inhabited over the last decade or so, which adds a, a slightly unusual wrinkle to things. Yeah, two of the last 10 seasons he's been a manager, one of which was in the, the second division in Germany. So it's very, yeah, very unusual for a club like Manchester United to appoint someone on the back of, you know, quite a significant gap in his CV. Um, and I think it's been interesting. A, a lot of the kind of, I mean, there was a great piece, well, a couple of uh, great pieces on, on the athletic site this week, particularly one by John Muller, which took the statistics of his time at Leipzig and basically compared that with all other sides in the last few years. And I think that really gives an insight as to 
what he wants from his team. But a lot of the the kind of preview pieces of, of how he'll manage have really been based around his quotes and interviews rather than his actual management, which again is a very unusual situation. I mean, you look at when Conte came, when Guardiola came, we were kind of taking a template of their past sides and putting it onto their new sides. Less possible to do that with Rangnick. So people are dependent a little bit more on the uh, the very many interviews he's given in recent years. I think as well, it's, he's coming into a completely different situation, one that he's never come into before, where he's known to be the one to, to build up a, an underdog or build up a club out of nowhere. And he's coming into a club now, which, yes, requires kind of some rebuilding, but it's, it's Manchester United, one of the biggest clubs in the world, where the remit is obviously very different. So how can we... <laughs> That almost what we're judging him on in his previous roles and success is going to be far different to to what he's going to be asked to do in this role as well. So it, this is why it's so interesting to see how he'll do. And we can do as many preview sort of pieces as we want, but <laughs> it's a completely different side that he's coming into, club, status, etc. Um, and yeah, this is why I think it'll be interesting. We're mostly going to focus on on the short term and on how he will turn this Manchester United side into one that, that looks like a, a classic Ranić side. Uh, I suppose long term the questions are different. I mean Rafa Honigstein calls him the godfather of the German coaching school who will bring with him a vision of a United team playing organised, exciting, high energy football and it feels like Ranić <laughs> Ranić's remit, easy for you to say, uh, is to uh, is to s- sort of start that journey before potentially a, being the, the main man to appoint, well, a godson to take the, the club forward in the mid to long term in, in future seasons. So it's a really interesting situation. Let's get into the specifics of his tactical history. Mark, you've done a lot of work looking at uh, some of uh, Ranić's previous sides as has John Muller one thing that we should mention because there are uh, managers such as Antonio Conte who appear to be so wedded to a certain basic shape or formation not really the case when it comes to Ranić yeah I think we'll kind of as you said before he has very clear principles of play very clear style of play in and out of possession but I think that the formations can be quite flexible kind of within that so he's largely known for his 4-4-2 system and variations of that I think more specifically, the sort of the Red Bull model that many people will be familiar with is that 4-2-2-2 system. Um, and you've seen it with Southampton, the likes of Ralph Hausenhutl, um has sort of implemented that style of play as well. So often that's having kind of wide forwards sort of playing a bit more narrowly and picking up sort of positions between the between the lines and um, sort of creating overloads in more central areas. But um, yeah, it can be, the, the actual formation itself can vary within that as well. Uh, in terms of that kind of high octane play in and out of possession. So he's been known to to play a 4-2-3-1 quite often as well. Um, a 4-3-3, I think he was quite successful with at Hoffenheim. And I think at Hoffenheim as well, it was a 3-5-2 that he was quite successful with as well. So it'll be interesting to see just kind of whether he will choose a formation with United of, of the above and kind of stick with that or or very much adapt to the opposition and the players that he's obviously got um, at hand to be able to, to adapt like that, yeah. Michael, when we start talking about Ranić football and specifics of it, I think we should start with general principles out of possession first, don't you? Because that, it feels like, defines his school of thought more so than what they do with the ball necessarily. Yeah, he's always been based around counter-pressing. That's been his his grand idea, really. I think it's important to kind of point out the uh, the difference between just pressing and counter-pressing. I don't think his sides always press really, really high from opposition goal kicks and go chasing the ball in the final third. But yeah, it's all about that emphasis on regaining the ball as, as soon as it's lost to prevent counter-attacks. And also because when the opposition are starting their 
shift to an attacking phase, that's when they might be just dragged a little bit out of position and you can catch him off guard. And, and he's very specific in terms of, you know, he, he wants to win the ball back quickly and he wants to try and get a shot away quickly. So it's quite a uh, intense and, and direct style of play, I suppose, in a certain extent, uh, to a certain extent. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it is based around that gegging-pressing or counter-pressing concept, which I do think is, is slightly separate from pressing in general, which mm. has been, uh, I suppose, a, a longer-standing feature of, of top-level football. This is something I've I sort of mentioned a couple of my pieces recently where there's there's a clear difference between kind of making a, a high volume of pressures and having a good press. So the, the obviously the press itself is very, very coordinated. So as Michael's saying, it's it's not necessarily just pressing from goal kicks, but that gagging press being coordinated, structured. There's often pressing triggers where you know or everyone goes as one uh, as well. So I think that there's there's obviously that clear difference between just making a lot of pressures and having a clear press. Um another thing I'd say is that going back to that piece that you mentioned by John Muller, I thought it was a brilliant piece. And he mentions loads of different metrics within it, but kind of as an idea of just how Ranić likes his teams to play. We don't have too much data going back historically, but that 2018-19 season at Leipzig, he, he basically looked at every club in the top five European leagues over the last five seasons. And one metric which I thought was interesting to kind of pull out from a defensive perspective is pass completion allowed. So basically how much a team disrupts the op- opposition from kind of knocking the ball around. And in that season, Leipzig allowed the opposition to have a sort of, on average, a pass completion rate of 74.7%. So that was amongst the, in the top 6% of all teams in those past five seasons, in terms of that's actually the lowest pass completion rate that they allowed the opposition to have. So I guess that kind of shows that they were disrupting the opposition from actually being able to you know, string a, a few passes together. So it shows that they actually are having a, a coherent press and an mm. effective one at that because the, the opposition can't really knock it around very much. Yeah, the standout sentence uh, about pressing rather than counter-pressing from John's piece was when defending against an opponent's organised build-up play rather than um, a, a transition moment, a moment of, of breakdown of possession, Ranić's team tend to be a little less aggressive than his reputation suggests. His preference for staying compact in defence instead of closing down as often as possible during organised phases shows in the zones where his team's applied pressure. So uh, already we're starting to uh, dig a little bit deeper than the top line press, 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 which is what you're going to hear a lot of. Not necessarily, Michael, expecting a front three at full speed all of the time when they don't have the ball, but moreover, um, more more to do with organisation and very specific triggers. Uh, and mostly we're talking in moments of, of, well, yeah, possession breakdown, moments of transition, rather than in the opposition's, you know, general build-up play. Yeah, I think so. It tends to be a bit more conservative in that. A high-ish line, but uh, yeah... A kind of midfield block and then, like you say, certain triggers and they go as a unit. And yeah, I'd say it's more about recovering the ball just after it's been lost rather than going chasing the ball all over the pitch, which, yeah, with the upcoming run of fixtures, I think would be very difficult to sustain anyway. And, you know, it's a a long way to go and Jurgen Klopp had a long time to implement it. But what are the, the tactical nuances between what we're talking about and, let's say, Klopp's Liverpool side at their heavy pressing best? Because I don't think... Klopp is considered one of the the godsons of Ranić, is he? Not not to the same extent as a a Tuchel or a Nagelsmann. 
No, you're right. I mean, slightly different uh, schools, but yeah, a similar concept, I'd say. I mean, Klopp's early days at Liverpool, I thought, was just, it was so frantic. And his Dortmund side as well was so frantic. And I think Klopp has actually reined that in a little bit. I remember when he was at Dortmund and he used to basically be challenging his players to run as far as they could. and was giving him days off if they cumulatively... Uh, recorded over 120 kilometres of possession, uh, sorry, of uh, distance covered in a game, which you just think, I suppose it's 10 years on, but you just think, I can't imagine anyone talking in those terms anymore. So yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit more controlled. It's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's quite a structured way of playing. I don't think he gives his players much freedom in terms of, um, well, certainly not without the ball, but even within possession, I think it's all quite controlled. So yeah, it's different from Klopp, where I think he, I think Klopp gives his his attackers a, a fair bit of freedom to kind of express themselves and do what they want to do after they've recovered the ball. Not sure you'll necessarily see Cristiano Ronaldo given a free roll by Rangnick, but we'll have to wait and see because at the end of the day, he's never coached a player with anything like the reputation or the status of, of Ronaldo. So that will be interesting. I mean, Hoffenheim, their remit was to sign players. I think not a single player signed over 23 in in many transfer windows and Leipzig as well have always trended very young haven't they so that is certainly an interesting uh, aspect of the the man management job that he has on his hands you're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and still to come on this episode Ranjik Ball with the ball that's up next looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So, Michael, a side like Manchester United, uh, who are expected to win titles, that is... Ranić's remit in the short, mid and long term, everyone's remit at Manchester United in fact, uh, it's assumed that this is a side who will have plenty of possession because that tends to be the way for so-called big six clubs uh, in the Premier League. What does Ranić football look like in possession if you had to sum it up? Well he wants the ball move forward quickly. Um, I think that suits Manchester United. They've got a lot of quick forwards who like going in behind. They like I said running forwards to put it very simply. I think Bruno Fernandes as well always wants to play the killer pass. Maybe at times does that too much, but I think his, his return of assists uh, justifies the fact he does give the ball away quite a lot. United don't really have any controlling midfielders. I mean, I can't really imagine how Pep Guardiola would do if he came in with this Manchester United side and found that really they don't have the midfield players that you'd, you'd like to really control the game. But they do have uh, players who can pass, can pass forward. Um, and yeah, they've, they've got lots of attack. I mean, they've got such an incredible number of attacking talents. I, I don't really know how you fit them all in one team, but maybe Ranit will give it a go. Um, yeah, he always says things along the lines of he wants a, a shot within 10 seconds of regaining the ball. I think that works well in the Bundesliga. The Bundesliga games are generally quite open. Most sides want to play 
positive, technical, German press-based football. Maybe it's more of an issue in the Premier League when at Old Trafford, Manchester United will face a lot of teams who want to sit deep um, and fewer teams who want to become involved in a kind of open, engaging game of football. I think there might be times where just saying, get the ball forward, shoot within 10 seconds is 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 not necessarily conducive to success. And you might have to be a little bit more patient, work the ball from side to side and break teams down a little bit more, more gradually. Um, but it, to me, it, it does feel broadly in keeping with um, Manchester United sides of the past who did, whether they played counter-attacking football or dominant football, they did get the ball forward quite quickly. Um, and I think that will be the, the greater emphasis here rather than long spells of possession. They will have a lot of possession, but probably more because they recover the ball quickly rather than because they're, they're desperately trying to keep it. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think that the, what I read recently was kind of as the headline is possession with a purpose, which I think is quite interesting as well. And Man United fans probably got a memory long enough to remember the, the Van Gaal days of of just passing it around sometimes for the sake of passing it and it was death by football at times so I think just having that that exciting possession with a purpose of you know as, as Michael said wanting Ranić wanting his side to to yeah, get the ball forward when possible and when relevant I think he doesn't like sideways passes or backwards passes only when there's a ball that actually could go forward so rather than it not being backwards or sideways at all um, but I was going to come back to, to John's piece and maybe I'm just waxing lyrical about his piece, but I think <laughs> that there was another really interesting sort of stat that he used in terms of in possession of that Leipzig side, just as an indication of kind of how he likes his team to play, of progressive pass share. So essentially of all of the passes that Leipzig made, how many were progressive? And this is defined by, um, this is FBRF's term of of saying it's completed passes that move the ball towards the opponent's goal at least 10 yards from its furthest point in the last six passes. So completed passes that move the ball towards the opponent's goal at least 10 yards from its furthest point in the last six passes. So a bit of a change in direction from the previous passes, um, or it can also be a pass that's um, into the penalty area. And essentially, Leipzig had 9% of their total passes were progressive and that was more than any other team in those past five seasons other than last season's Atalanta which I thought was quite interesting but it just shows it goes to show just how much they are looking to play it forward mm. when the opportunity arises so again we'll expect to see Man United hopefully creeping up in that statistic as well I mean it sounds exciting to be honest the style of football and and the way that you guys talking are about his principles both in and out of possession certainly an interesting question that you raised Michael about how easy in the Premier League compared to the Bundesliga is it to manufacture transition-based football basically in, in a league where compared to the Bundesliga most teams don't want to dance to that tune I suppose that has to be one of the big questions but go back to the the exciting part of it can we expect a lot of goals I mean a glance at his Bundesliga record and although he's only managed 10 games so far in the Champions League in his career I think it's 3.8 goals per game uh, total combined goals uh, in those games it, it feels like we might expect quite a lot of excitement in games uh, involving Manchester United yeah, I think, yeah, abs absolutely true. I think there's, kind of as Michael said, and you both said at the start, there's not a great deal of um, data to kind of go from because historically he hasn't managed all that much recently. But I think, yeah, you're right to say that there'd be, be likely to expect goals. I looked, I dug into to that same season in Leipzig, 2018-19 in the Bundesliga, and they averaged 
1.9 goals per 90 in the Bundesliga, which was actually the fifth highest uh, in the Bundesliga behind by Leverkusen, Hoffenheim, interestingly, Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich. And that from that same season, which I think maybe maybe it's because of his the, the high press that they work so hard defensively to sort of keep it away from their own defensive third. But their defensive record was actually the best in the league that season. So they actually only conceded 0.8 goals per 90, which was better than Bayern Munich. Um, who obviously were the league winners that season. So it kind of just shows that as much as he is going to obviously improve the attack, I'd imagine, given obviously he's got so many good attacking players, sort of forget that given that style, it'll actually help them at the back as well. Michael, this is someone who's pretty dogmatic in, in footballing terms, who has inspired so many that he's worked with, is very, very demanding from what I've read uh, for, for every employee at the club uh, in which he works. How preposterous would it be for me to suggest that there is something of a, of a German Marcelo Bielsa? Yeah, I think there is that comparison in the emphasis on, on pressing, albeit in a slightly different way. And also in the fact that his reputation is greater really than his achievements, I would say, as a manager. And that's maybe a little bit harsh on Bielsa. I mean, he, he's won a lot of things throughout his career and did a fantastic job with Chile, got Atletico Bilbao to the Europa League final. But both of them, I think, really have... Yeah, they have their reputation because of, of what their uh, protégés say about them. And just as I think Bielsa's case was helped by Guardiola speaking about him a lot over the last 10 years, I think the same has been true. Of uh, of Tuchel speaking about uh, about Rangnick, for example. Um, so yeah, I think there's a similarity there. There was a lot in Rafa Honigstein's piece that that made me so excited to have Rangnick in the Premier League. There was one bit that was something of a red flag for me, and it was about uh, off-field stuff, really. Um, power struggles. Uh, quoting from Rafa, at Stuttgart, he immediately came up against a problem that would follow him around at other top-level engagements. The same people who hired him to bring in change lost their nerve when those changes threatened the existing order. Rangnick's reformist zeal lost traction amid the complex power structure of a club that's never happy at the best of times. I mean, A, that seems a little like um, Ranić, perhaps like Bielsa, if he's your coach, manager, consultant, di- director of football, whatever it might be, you you do need to live by Ranić, die by Ranić. And, and I just worry that the current uh, hierarchy at Manchester United, Michael, they don't scream or they don't have a history necessarily of being particularly good at, at that. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a chaotic arrangement actually that's happening at Manchester United, certainly he's a great person to have around, but the structure at Manchester United has always been very confused, I think, over the last couple of seasons. There's various people who I don't quite understand their roles. Obviously, there's going to be a change in terms of Edward Wood is, is stepping down. Then there was chat he was going to be retained as some kind of consultant. Don't understand on the basis of what, considering how chaotic his choices have been over the last few years. Um, so, yeah, I, I find uh, I find the Rangnick thing slightly peculiar and uh, I think people tend to see you know talented people like Rangnick tend to succeed when there's a clear job for them and they have clear responsibilities and I think the the responsibilities of his role as interim manager then two-year consultant um, I think there's a big question mark there yeah and it, it, to have that you have to be kind of all-consuming across the whole of the club exactly as you say Michael and just to pick up on that last point, that's what I find the most interesting. I know we touched upon it in the start, but the structure is a six-month deal and then a two-year consultancy, which given that Ranić's sort of remit in his success has been long-term and hands-on, 
the role in this appointment seems to be short term and potentially hands off in terms of that consultancy. So I, I might be missing something in just what that consultancy will go on to be. But it just seems like in order for him to sort of implement what he wants to implement, he needs to. It needs to be kind of all-consuming. And just quickly, just to read something from from Rafa as well. That in his piece, he said that Ranić hired people for jobs that hadn't even existed at the time at football clubs before. So a video analyst, sports psychologist. He had complex training sessions that put players under maximum mental pressure to to make it sort of more authentic to a real game. And like, if it, will he be able to implement all of those things and really be afforded the the time and responsibility to have a shake-up, or is he is he just I don't know, making a short-term change. It just confuses me a little bit. And I think with the consultancy, I mean, that's such a broad term. It could mean anything. I mean, that could mean that he's almost a director of football in everything but name because I think Manchester United already have a, a director of football now. Or it could mean that he's really not doing that much and he's just on the end of the phone to give advice when needed. And the reason for that is that, well, he had a long-term deal with Locomotive Moscow he wasn't going to leave that kind of contract for six months of work at Manchester United. So they needed to, you know, give him something a bit meatier that he could sign up for. So, yeah, again, I don't have any doubts about Rangnick's capabilities, but I, I don't really understand his role. And of course, it's presumably going to, um, you know, his consultancy role might differ upon the identity of the next manager. There's certain managers who might come in and want wants his advice and wants them hanging around others might want control over everything and I mean I'd if I was Manchester United I, I think I'd be a little bit more dutiful to the wishes of the manager rather than someone who's a consultant just because <laughs> I don't really know what a consultant does at a football club because it could mean a hundred different things well many questions about his style of football have been answered in doing so, we've raised some other questions as well, which will probably be left unanswered for the moment, more of a, a wait-and-see brief. But in the final part of this Athletic Football Tactics podcast, we're going to look at the Manchester United squad that Ranić has to work with and particularly which players may benefit or suffer from the changes in the pipeline. So the last quote from Honigstein's piece, I promise. I mean, he was he was literally on the podcast last week and we've probably heard as many of his words uh, on this piece, but that's because he is the godfather of, of German football writing, at least to my eyes. Uh, a big piece on Ranić involving the quote from Ranić himself saying, to develop, educate and coach, you need to be sure what kind of football you need to play. That's what all the top coaches in Europe have in common. They know what their football looks like. They have a video of the perfect game in their heads. The job is to transform that idea of football into the heads, hearts, brains and veins of the players. That's motivation, the transfer of belief. So let's take a look. <laughs> the hearts and the veins. He Interesting. Was, he was getting good at interviews, wasn't he, Michael, as yeah. you mentioned earlier. So let's take a look at the heads, hearts, brains and veins of the Manchester United squad. Actually, um, head and brain, I'd say, is roughly similar as well. It's basically two... He's, gone for, he's got two... He's got the brain and the heart, hasn't he? And I think head and veins are similar to those two things. Well, Do you agree? Whatever it is, it, it's got me pumped. Um, <laughs> Mark, another question really um, is that in previous jobs, and we, we must remember that what has come before doesn't mean that the same will happen again in, in, in the footballing world. And certainly when it comes to managers, I think that's something that we need to be careful of. But uh, we can't get past the fact that in his last 
two major jobs with with Hoffenheim and with Leipzig, he had very young squads to work with uh, and made them younger in the transfer market as well. Just give me a, uh, an overview of Manchester United's squad age profile. Before I sort of answer, I guess you're right in terms of he wants a young side, he wants a young squad, but again, the remit that he's kind of working with in terms of Manchester United, a team who is sort of wanting to win and win now, um, more often than not, then again, the remit is slightly different. But it's actually interesting that when looking at the, the age profile, it's it's actually building off something that Tom did as his parting gift to us in terms of looking at the, the peak ages of the respective positions of each um, peak age that Manchester United squad is very, very close to exactly at its peak right now. So it is built to to win right now. So they have eight players who are in their peak, um, which is up there with as, as most as many as anyone um, in the Premier League this season. So you combine the the senior experience of Cavani, Matic, and obviously Ronaldo, and you've got the youth of Greenwood, Sancho, and Rashford, and you do have that real blend of peak experience and youth as well. Um, but looking at obviously looking at um, again that 2018-19 season, uh, RB Leipzig had the the youngest squad in the Bundesliga, 23.5 years old. So again, it shows that he does like to work with um, with young players. Um, the, as I say, the remit will be different at Manchester United. But I was also interested to see that he actually likes to judging on this season at RB Leipzig, he likes to to work with quite few players or have quite a small squad in the sense that he had. 23 players used that season, which was um, only Borussia Mönchengladbach and Bayer Leverkusen had fewer that season. So I guess it sort of shows that maybe, again, it was because of the tools that he had, smaller squad because it was a different remit for a team. But would he like to kind of keep that small squad as, as tightly as possible to implement the principles that he wants? Or will he just use the whole wider squad at Manchester United? I don't know. Well, we can assume that the football is going to look very different compared to their play under Solskjaer this season, which means changes afoot and, and that will suit some players more so than others. Let, let's play a, a game of good news for, bad news for, uh, Michael, in, in terms of the Manchester United squad. We'll start at the back. I mean, in terms of the defence, the centre-backs, it feels like uh, the biggest change for them will likely be the 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 height of the line. I was going to say the depth on the pitch, but you can't be both high and deep, can you? Um the, the height of the defensive line will be uh, an immediate change, you'd think. Uh, and that comes with, you know, different skill set required. Are, th- are there any Manchester United defenders that stand out as, as maybe um, looking at having more minutes or fewer minutes under Ranić if that's a, a key part of his play? Yeah, I'm interested in this. I don't quite know what his preferences would be. I think of Harry Maguire as someone who's very aerially dominant. And I think aerial dominance is less important the higher you are up pitch. I always quite like Lindelof, actually. He seems to go under the radar a bit, but I think of all Manchester United defenders, he's been the one who's been guilty of the fewest mistakes in recent weeks. And he's good on the ball as well, can carry the ball forward, which um, which could be a part of that. So, I mean, Varane, you think, when he's at full speed, will we'll be starting. But yeah, I'd be, I'd be a little bit concerned if I was Harry Maguire, obviously the club captain, so um, he's got some status there. But he's not one who I think looks comfortable on the turn at times. We saw his... Um, the first booking of his red card at Watford was a classic example of where a runner got in behind and he had to haul him down. So, yeah, maybe he's the most uh, the most at risk. What about a fullback? Because uh, we've done whole podcasts about how 
the very top teams of the Premier League, Manchester City and Liverpool and Chelsea, the three currently, uh, how they use their fullbacks and how crucial they are um, to, to build up play, to attacking output and all of those things. With, with Manchester United, you have uh, a few different options. Wan-Bissaka at right back. I'd be interested to know whether you think he, he fits or not uh, in terms of the sort of style of play that we're discussing. And also Luke Shaw, who in one of the many pieces I read about Ranić this week, it was mentioned that previously, I think he was doing an interview, he was asked about Manchester United and, and he questioned whether Luke Shaw was good enough to, to get them to the very top so at, at one point if not now he, he wasn't a huge fan of Shaw's output Michael uh, Manchester United uh, the defensive midfield zone has been the sort of loudest issue over the last year or two but it strikes me that fullback it is certainly a big area to improve on for them yeah it was interesting to see Tellers play um, at the weekend in place of Shaw who's had a really difficult season after being pretty good at the Euros I would say um, and had a good last season as well. Yeah, I don't know about Wan Bissaka. I mean, the thing is with Wan Bissaka, it was such a big shift to playing in a Hodgson side to playing at a big side at Man- like Manchester United. And I don't think he's ever really had the coaching of like a top modern manager. So I still think there is potential there. But certainly the Wan Bissaka that we see at the moment, I can't imagine is particularly suited to Ranek's football. I wonder if he might do something mad at right back might, might he play McTominay there or something like that just someone who's really energetic and you know physical and I think just in terms of attitude McTominay is the kind of player that he might like to to have in the side I can't necessarily see him as a long-term central midfielder um but yeah may, maybe there's an option to do something a little bit a little bit quirky at right back in the center of the park uh, what sort of attributes are we looking for here I mean from what you guys have said you're going to want midfielders who are willing and able to progress the ball quickly you don't need too many touches with the ball because you know quick forward progressive passes are going to be the order of the day and not necessarily creative passes necessarily from the base midfield but just good decision makers almost more than anything it strikes me from what you guys guys have said you know we talk a lot about physical skills required and technical skills required to be a, a central midfield player, dare I say, in a Ranić side, you know, it, it's it's a question of of mental skills as much as anything else. It's being able to think quickly. It's being able to uh, contain and then act upon the information that you're given in terms of pressing triggers and in terms of how to move the ball forward. So it, there's all these different parts that go into being an elite central midfielder. And I, and I wonder which of the current crop of, of United central midfielders, Mark, perhaps stand out to you as, as being those who might benefit or suffer from this. Yeah, well, benefit and suffer is, is sort of two things that I sort of had in mind because I think starting with who might suffer, actually, I think McTominay, given that he he can be quite frustrating kind of on the ball sometimes where he does choose that sideways or backward, backwards pass, that, that safer pass. And I think it was, I think on Sunday, I think Fred got frustrated at him for not actually passing forward when there was the option on. So I think that kind of on the ball, um, McTominay, he's not the most active presser anyway, but he's quite defensively disciplined. But he can, he might sort of struggle to to implement that kind of progressive passing, I think. I think on the note of Fred, I think he is, I sort of wrote in my piece that he is very active, very active off the ball. He's, he's the highest, he has the highest volume of pressures per 90 um, of anyone in the Manchester United squad. But then almost the other way, he's actually not, that great on the ball um, himself in terms of getting getting the ball forward as well and sometimes making silly decisions and <laughs> Sunday aside of making the silly decision of actually in the penalty box I think in more of the centre of the park he's sometimes not the best decision maker so I think there's pros and cons to McTominay and Fred but I think it could be a, an option for 
Van der Beek to actually get a decent chance. I think he can't get much worse for him. But I think that because he's he's very technically gifted, he's able to to play in more of a deeper central role. If if you asked him to, I think that he could be someone who, on a technical level, kind of as you say, Ali, he could benefit. So I think there's it will depend. I think it, the early weeks will sort of find that out. But I think Van der Beek might actually get a, a bit of a run in for once. Michael, we saw Nemanja Matic in the heart of their midfield on Sunday. Do you see him getting more minutes or fewer minutes? I can't tell because I, I think he is quite an intelligent player. And like you say, speed of thought and that kind of thing is is important. But I also he's never been the most mobile Matic, even at his peak. And so I do I do fear for him a little bit. I'd like to see Rani be a bit more positive in midfield. And I don't think it's inconceivable. You could feel Fred is the deepest player. And then... Maybe Fernandez and Van der Beek, who I think are both capable of pressing. They're both energetic players. A three like that, I think, could work well for now. I'd prefer it if Manchester United had a real top-class holding midfielder to play in there. But they don't. So, yeah, a little bit more of a positive tilt to the midfield could work. It certainly feels like a, a team tactical setup where Bruno Fernandes could thrive. I mean, most tactical setups are such where a player like him could thrive. I wonder, in terms of his pressing, he's clearly very up for it, but not necessarily always executing in in the right way, if you know what I mean. I don't want to dig anyone out, but very notably that first goal in their heavy defeat to Liverpool, Fernandes picked up a lot of flack for pressing the goalkeeper for for really no real reason. It was kind of reminiscent of a, of a puppy chasing a crow in a park, more so than uh, something more strategic. So it feels like one of Ranić's jobs will be to encourage Fernandes to continue that physical output in pressing, but try and make him a little bit smarter. I mean, I watched the... The, the Chelsea game on Sunday and don't get me wrong Jorginho is is one of the smartest at controlling the ball shielding it in tight spaces turning away and, and playing a smart pass but uh, it did strike me as uh, quite funny how much Fernandez pressed Jorginho and you know at the drop of a hat Jorginho would have spun him and and, and played past him so um, something for Fernandez to work on but quite exciting to think of of what he could be if he could improve uh, on that front in particular. What about attacking midfielders, wide men and, and strikers, Michael? Got quite a big group of players here. It'd be interesting to know which you think should be rubbing their hands with glee at this appointment. I think you're like Sancho. I mean, Sancho played at Dortmund, broadly similar system, I suppose, in a way. Um, the one I'd worry for in the short term be Mason Greenwood, just because just looking at the way he pressed in a couple of, I think it was the Liverpool game, just almost looked like he'd never really been taught how to press and it reminds me of when um, the young lad Oliver Burt went to Leipzig and I can't remember it was Rangnick or Hasnoodle said he's starting at zero in terms of pressing they said they said more specifically they said he was like an empty hard drive (laughs) (laughs) which is an incredible like I mean actually evisceratingly mean when you think about it but also an incredible use of language it is I I think of that as yeah, that is, you're right, that is quite harsh, isn't it? Um, hopefully they don't say the same about Warville when he arrives. But, uh, yeah, I just wonder about Greenwood um, in terms of that pressing. I mean, not saying he can't learn it and he's the kind of player who long-term I think will, will really uh, benefit from working under, hopefully, uh, a top-class and a top-class coach in the long term as, as well as just for the next six months. But yeah, his, his pressing hasn't really impressed me so far. Yeah, I agree um, with with Greenwood. I think that Sancho will will benefit as well. I think that Rashford, when channeled in the right way, will will also benefit. I think that we're all kind of 
ignoring a Cristiano Ronaldo shaped elephant in the room, um, which well, I know that we sort of touched upon it, but I think that I sort of wrote it in the piece that he's not, he's known to, to be a player who's not going to make a, a lot of uh, pressures. I mean, with this, his undoubted ability on the ball, that's fine, but obviously it's off the ball that is, is key to, uses the stick to beat him with sometimes. Um, but I don't think it's suddenly going to be that he is going to make a, a high volume of pressures and really start to just run about. It's not his game, it never will be, but there is going to be either a compromise from him a little bit in, in terms of sort of wrote that he might just be a bit more kind of careful in shepherding a, the opponent more towards a, a pressing trigger or blocking more kind of passing lanes and not exerting too much energy in that regard. And I think that Ranić will no doubt adapt as well. And I think we said before that he's he's not dealt with the the superstar status of someone like Ronaldo. So I think there'll be an element of uh, compromise from Ranić as well to to try and fit Ronaldo in within the principles and overall kind of system of play, but maybe adapt accordingly. Sort of maybe we'll see something different for the first time in Ranić's career to to try and get the best out of Ronaldo as well. Mm. I think compromise is probably the most apt word that's been said on this podcast so far when we're talking Ranić at Manchester United. The, the last line I'm going to nick from someone else's work on the Athletic site was part of John Muller's piece where having crunched all the different metrics to try and uh, sum up and explain uh, Ranić's playing style. He then compared all of those metrics to the 20 Premier League sides and Manchester United's style of play under Solskjaer in all of the metrics that John looked at had them as the third most dissimilar team after Newcastle and Norwich to Ranić's RB Leipzig side. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Southampton were number one, coached by former RB Leipzig manager Ralph Hassenhüttl, one of Ranić's godsons. And and that just speaks to, well, I, I think this is an incredible footballing interest story. From, you know, leave aside the name of the club and the la- name of the manager and the name of the players. If you're into football tactics, this is a fascinating, fascinating case study you know and compromise has to be a, a big word if if we consider Manchester United to be at one end of the spectrum currently or previously and Ranić's sides to be at the other end how far can they get in six months of Ranić being in the dugout how much further might they get in the long term when Ranić we assume will be part of the next hire uh, it's all absolutely fascinating and I think you know, you guys have given so much information. You've answered so many questions for me, but there's so many that have been raised as well because there's also compromise in terms of off-field stuff, power struggles, hierarchical structures and all those sorts of things that we don't tend to worry too much about on this podcast. I'm really, really excited about this. I'm excited about what's to come. Uh, intrigued, for sure, at how quickly this style can be implemented. Uh, I'm fascinated by the decision that the, the hierarchy have taken. Ralph Ranić there. Uh, covered as best we can on this week's podcast. This has been the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. A huge thanks to Michael and to Mark for their insight. More of that can be found multiple times a week, of course, in written form on the Athletic site. Uh, And you can sign up today if you head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. £3.33 a month for a year. That's a £40 discount on a year subscription. Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. But... Equally as important, make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed because we are weekly and we'll be back next week with another episode. Always grateful that you choose to listen to us. Thank you so much. And for any feedback that you send our way as well, always welcome. That's it from us. We'll see you next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Podcast.
The Athletic.